Well, welcome back to the Lamppost Listener. My name is Daniel. I'm Phil. And this is a podcast where we journey chapter by chapter through C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia. This is chapter 15 of The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, Deeper Magic from Before the Dawn of Time. All right, so we ended on quite a sour note last time, but we're feeling a lot better, right, Phil? We sure are. I've had a little time to recover. Yeah, and we have a special guest with us today. Would you like to introduce yourself? Hi, my name is Anna. Hello, Any, Anna. Anything you want to share about yourself? Um, I am married to Daniel. Okay. And it's an honor to be here. Yeah, this is really, really fun. We're looking forward to this chapter. You had told me that you were really interested. When we Phil and I first started doing this podcast, Anna was like, I really want to do chapter 15. Or you, I think you just said like the chapter where Aslan is resurrected. Wow, spoiler. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> was, there, was there any reason in particular you were really interested in this chapter? I mean, it, I mean it's a, there's a lot of hope in this chapter, um, and it's really fun. And I think we'll get to some of, more, some more of that later of why I love it so much. Yeah, great. I don't want to spoil anything. <laughs> exactly, yeah. We understand. Uh, although uh, we, we kind of play this game where we try not to move ahead, but I, I would love to know if there actually are any listeners who are, like, going along with us for the first time. I have to assume that we're kind of just doing this as kind of a fun way for us to, you know, travel through this book but there, I'm, I'm assuming everyone actually has read the book and is is fall is keeping up with us what do you think phil i think there has to be at least one person who has never read the books and just got hooked and they're listening to the summary each time and finding out stuff yeah and we would love for you to contact us and Please. prove my theory I, I it's really just phil at this point that's the, that probably is the only person who hasn't moved ahead well, I haven't. I mean, it's been a really long time since I'd read this book, so I had forgotten a lot of the really crucial details. I mean, I remembered liking this chapter. I remembered, you know, the premise of the chapter, but I didn't remember any of the details. So it was really lovely to go back and read it. Oh. Another thing I've noticed is I think that by the time we finish this season of the podcast, we'll have read this book three times minimum. Oh, at least. <laughs> but like, not like reading all the way through three times. Like we've read every chapter three times. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I usually read a couple of times beforehand just to make sure I really have it, especially when I'm the one doing the chapter summary like I am today. So are we ready to jump nice into transition. it? transition, yeah. Let's go. <laughs> All right, so here's chapter 15. As Aslan lies dead on the stone table, the witch's armies leave the hilltop to prepare for battle. Susan and Lucy grieve over Aslan's body. They take off the muzzle around his mouth, but are unable to untie the tight cords around him. As the night goes on, small mice appear and begin chewing the knots, eventually leaving Aslan untied. The girls decide to walk around the hill, but just as dawn is arriving, they hear an enormous crack. They return to the hilltop to find the stone table split in two and Aslan standing next to the table. He tells the girls that the witch had forgotten the deeper magic. Because of his sacrifice, death itself is working backwards. The girls frolic with Aslan around the hill before he lets out a deafening roar. Susan and Lucy climb on Aslan's back and ride with him to the witch's castle. Well done. And I hit the perfect 150 words. I had to like take out a couple of uh, pronouns there and, and <laughs> mix some stuff around. It was kind of like playing a, a fun game. What are some things that stood out to y'all before we kind of start breaking down the chapter? Like, What are some like quick takeaways? One thing I noticed is we have a very, very low point where they're just... They're crying so much that they can't cry anymore, and then they do cry more. Um, but you also have a real high point when they're riding on Aslan, and he's 
um, right before that, he's, you know, running around having them chase him. Um, so it's just like a real, this is a big turning point in the book. Did you have a takeaway, Anna? Yeah, I mean, I would kind of echo that. Like, there, there's a very, there's two very strong emotions throughout, um, or feelings throughout the chapter. It's joy and sorrow, and that juxtaposition, like, reinforce, like the juxtaposition reinforces both. Like, you can't really feel the joy at the end of the chapter without really knowing the depth of the sorrow that they felt at the beginning. That's good. Mm. I think my big takeaway was why well, two. One was really interesting, and there. This is probably the most pivotal chapter of the book. I mean, there literally is a pivot here in which the whole story revolves. But this chapter probably has the least amount of things happening, mm-hmm. and it takes place over the shortest amount of time. I mean, we're going from the middle of the night till morning, and that's it. I guess at the very end, they do travel to the witch's castle, but that's just the very last paragraph or so. Mm-hmm. Um, this is there's really this is a very short time span and and even pages wise this is a shorter chapter um yet it's so incredibly important the second thing that stood out to me is there's a clear sense of emotion and atmosphere here lewis uses a, a lot of emotional language in this chapter and i think he also really uses light to symbolize the the way that the girls are kind of moving through their grief and the hope oh, that yeah. is slowly coming. So I, I definitely, as we mm-hmm. go through here, I want to break down a couple of the times that C.S. Lewis talks about light. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm going to go ahead and read the beginning of the chapter here. While the two girls still crouched in the bushes with their hands over their faces, they heard the voice of the witch calling out, Now, follow me all and we will set about what remains of this wall. It will not take us long to crush the human vermin and the traitors now that the great fool, the great cat, lies dead. At this moment, the children were for a few seconds in very great danger. For with wild cries and the noise of skirkling pipes and shrill horns blowing, the whole of that vile rabble came sweeping off the hilltop and down the slope right past their hiding place. They felt the specters go by them like a cold wind, and they felt the ground shake beneath them under the galloping feet of the minotaurs. And overhead, there were a flurry of foul wings and a blackness of vultures and giant bats. At any other time, they would have trembled with fear. But now the sadness and shame and horror of Aslan's death so filled their minds that they hardly thought of it. So we start this chapter off in just as bad of a place as we left Susan and Lucy. I mean, it's, it's just continuing kind of that really bad space. Do you all feel that? I do, mm-hmm. yeah. It's, it's almost like, you know, we've, we've approached this in a very serialized format, reading each chapter at a time. And the last couple of chapters, there's been kind of a, a hard pivot at the beginning of each chapter. From, you know, chapter 13, it was just very tense. Chapter 14 was one of just despair. And then 15 just continues that. There's not any atmospheric change here in Lewis's writing. We just continue on. And this is literally picking up the moment after the last chapter ended. So you can kind of tell we're right here at the climax of the book because the chapters are just flowing one into the other. Any other takeaways from that passage? I think there's an interesting contrast with the witch who is so confident and kind of at a high point in her own story. And then, you know, that's going on and they rush past the children who are at such a low point. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's, I think in general, Lewis does a great job 
you know, painting a picture. Like, his imagery is really great. Mm-hmm. When I read this pack- package, passage, when I read this passage, I really feel, yeah, like you were saying, Daniel, I really feel the darkness. I really feel like I'm, like, there. I'm not really sure what minotaurs are. Do you guys know what minotaurs are? Yeah, you <laughs> they're like small tars. <laughs> That's what they are. They're many tars. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> For listeners, Anna is such a gracious wife, and uh, although she is quite nerdy, she doesn't necessarily take it to the level of Phil and I, and so you've been really good sport about this. Uh, I, I guess well, I you could it. explain it this way. Minotaurs, in a lot of cases, are amazing. <laughs> in, in Greek mythology, if... <laughs> Yeah, do I need to explain it? Yeah, you got to explain it now. <laughs> in Greek mythology, I think it's Greek mythology, minotaurs are often were found at the end of a maze. That's why they're amazing. Oh, but <laughs> um, what are they? They're half man, half bull. Oh, okay. Am I right? Isn't that right? Yep. Yeah. That's what the, because you know, I have the, Paul, is it Pauline Baines? Pauline Baines? Yeah, that's the illustrator. Mm-hmm, but you guys always talk about that Phil doesn't know. Um, <laughs> we have a I listener. Have, I have her, um illustration here and it does look like i mean he looks it's like a bull head and a, yeah and a human's body it's they're kind of yeah and and some of the stuff we've also found she doesn't necessarily depict exactly what c.s lewis is writing but mm-hmm. it's i mean they're pretty terrifying illustrations there yeah they are and that and all of the things you know including them now that i know what a minotaur is that's helpful um but the <laughs> fact the fact that there's like anything you could imagine that is dark and evil kind of like flowing around there it's interesting especially bats i'm not a fan of bats myself so that sounds terrifying the giant bats yeah and i love the alliteration to a flurry of foul wings um and then not alliteration but the blackness of vultures and giant bats it's just some very scary stuff Mm -hmm. it is and we leave kind of that you know they leave and susan and lucy are left there and they're they're just as hopeless as they are scared. Mm-hmm. So you know they go to Aslan. They try to. They take off his muzzle. They try to untie the cords, um, but they they can't. And while while they're doing that, there's a line that, that C.S. Lewis writes, where they talk about the muzzle, and he and he writes. So they tried, and after a lot of working at it, for their fingers were cold, and it was now the darkest part of the night, they succeeded. So they're able to get the muzzle off. But I really want to start talking about night light excuse me light and dark because it's i hadn't noticed this before but as i was reading this yesterday and then today as well i was realizing c.s lewis often talks about light in this chapter i mean there's really clear connections we can draw between like you know the good and the light and the bad and the dark kind of thing which which is very clearly here in this book um but even from the the start so we're on just like the second page or third page of the chapter we're seeing that it's here at their moment of most despair, it's the darkest part of the night. Right. Mm-hmm. And then very shortly after, it was one was the, the sky on the east side of the hill was a little less dark than it had been an hour ago. And that's like very shortly after. Um, and then like as things start to get better throughout the chapter, it does get lighter, like you were talking about. Exactly. Yeah. That's just like what the two paragraphs down, it starts to get a little bit better. So we're definitely going to keep unpacking that. What happens next? Well, after that, yeah, (laughs) the mice definitely, yeah. So right after that with the muzzle, it actually, it's coming to probably one of my favorite parts of the chapter, which sounds a little weird. And we haven't really talked about this yet. Y'all have talked about it in the past, but 
just the change the change of perspective here for a second where C.S. Lewis's voice kind of enters in mm-hmm. the part where it says, well, in my book, it's at the bottom of 173. I hope no one who reads this book has been quite as miserable as Susan and Lucy were that night. Um, I'm actually, I mean, it's very, yeah, it's very, it's very tough to read because he describes how miserable they were, how sad they were. Um, but I think it serves a couple of different purposes. It, um, I mean, he breaks the fourth wall, obviously, which draws the reader in. But he, yeah, he gives the reader an idea of how they're feeling, which, you know, if this book, you know, I first encountered this book when I was a child, it kind of reminds me of, you know, if someone is reading a story to you. Um, I don't know if y'all do, but when whenever I read to kids, a lot of times, especially younger kids, even if it's a picture book, I'll stop and I'll say, he was really sad, you know, like you were really sad yesterday, you know, when you fell and you skinned your knee and it was really hard and it hurt, mm. you know, to kind of help illustrate that. And it also kind of helps the, helps the reader empathize um, with Susan and Lucy. He's like, I hope you haven't been really sad, but if, you, if you've been really sad and you've cried and you've cried and you felt like you had no more tears left, there was a sort of quietness. I know, I just found I just found that passage really really moving. Yeah, absolutely. What I love about that is even if you haven't felt that, he still goes on to describe it. Exactly. And so you still understand like okay, so this is more sad than I've ever been before, but if you have felt it, it still works for you. So like mm-hmm. he kind of covered everybody. Mhm. Yeah, I th- I think one of the biggest takeaways for me as we've gone through this whole season of reading the book is that Every time C.S. Lewis breaks the fourth wall, it's done to draw you deeper in, not to take you out. I mean, there's mm-hmm. different, you know, approaches, especially, at, you know, with comedy. Often you think about, like, movies or mm-hmm. um, television. If they break the fourth wall, it's usually the, it's it's supposed to be, like, a splitting away from the narrative or for, from that, you know, the structure of whatever you're watching. This, I think, does, like, the opposite mm-hmm. of that, and it, it draws you deeper into the story. And I'd love to, as we go along with these books, see if – is that a thing that just – is able to happen because we're in a more dramatic kind of place? Is that because literature allows that? Like, what, what it, or is that just C.S. Lewis as a writer that is able to kind of latch onto your emotions and draw you in? But it's it's definitely different than when I think of something like, you know, Arrested Development or, you know, a TV show that, that breaks the fourth wall. It never brings me more, and it it, it um, pushes me further away. But that's that's the part of the point, you know? That's because he's doing it in a very, like I said, a very, like, storyteller kind of mm-hmm. way. You know, like you were saying, in TV shows, a lot of times when they break the fourth wall, it's more like trying to be meta. Like, is mm-hmm. this real? Like, art is a lie. Nothing is real. Like, yeah. it's, you know, kind of <laughs> stuff like that. Like, more performance art. And C.S. Lewis is saying, y'all, they were really, really upset mm-hmm. and they felt no hope. Here's how it was. I don't know. It feels like he's kind of ushering you, like you said, deeper into the story. You know what it reminds me of is the Princess Bride when the grandfather's reading to the kid. Yes. Oh, I love that. It's just like C.S. Lewis is right there and going, well, have you ever felt so sad that you couldn't cry anymore? Mm-hmm. That's good. Oh, that's a good connection. So then the mice show up after the girls mm-hmm. are not able to untie uh, the, the cords around Aslan. And I'm going to read a little bit from the book here. They could see the mice nibbling away, dozens and dozens, even hundreds of little field mice. And at last, one by one, the ropes were all gnawed through. 
So here again, we have light and the fact that it's illuminating the girls' faces. It's definitely lighter than it was before. And we even have kind of the mice coming to the rescue. And it's, you know, the beautiful depiction of here's a great lion, the, the great cat, as the witch calls him, right, being um, freed of these cords by little mice. And there's actually, we can't get too much into this because it would be moving forward, but there's a great payoff um, as to a gift that Aslan gives to the mice later on because of, of their kindness here and freeing him. Do either of y'all know what I'm talking about? I don't. Okay. I don't remember. <laughs> okay, that's so fine. That'll be fun. So <laughs> we gotta wait till the after it till another book. Oh man, another book. I think it's in the next. I've book. read this book the most out of the whole series, so yeah, there's there's not no chance that I remember that then. It's like, what is he talking about? Yeah. Any other takeaways from that little passage? Um, oh, go, go ahead. ahead. <laughs> <laughs> go ahead. No, no, yours is probably. I was just gonna talk about how I don't like critters, but I don't want to create any enemies. I've already said I don't like bats. I don't think we have a lot of bat listeners and critter listeners. I know some people really love mice, and I just feel like they're gross. I would have had the same reaction. <laughs> there, uh, one thing I noticed is how Lucy. We know that she's the smallest. Um, even even among the beavers, she's like the smallest person. I think she just has a different perspective, and her different perspective here brings her closer to the mice where she can see what they're doing. And I also just love the way that she talks about them. She goes, I think they're friendly mice. She just has like a very different kind of perspective on what, what their motives may be, I guess. Um, she, maybe she isn't as um, aware of like the horrors of the world or something, but she just, she doesn't assume the same thing that uh, Susan does. I mean, that's definitely been Lucy's character through and yeah. through throughout the book. And it's nice because I feel like, you know, we spent so much of this book with Lucy in the first, you know, six, seven, eight chapters. And then we, we really haven't spent a lot of time with her. We focused on Peter and Edmund. We focused on Aslan and the witch. We really, it's, it's really nice to have Lucy kind of come back these last two chapters um, in such a large role because, I mean, she's my favorite character in the book for sure. And it's, it's not even naive that sounds too pejorative for her she's she's innocent right yeah. and i think like and even just her being a little bit younger than susan susan kind of expects the worst from these uh mice at first and lucy's like you know wait wait i mean lucy is the you know the epitome you know just to kind of draw these things back to the bible um i feel like it's the epitome of what jesus meant when he said let the little children come to me you know mm this it was i'm trying to figure out the. i know the word i feel like i know the word that you're looking for it's not naive it's this like childlike um i, I don't know joy innocence well innocence no but one likes no, my it's word deeper no i mean innocence is just like it's it's not a bad word but it's like not it doesn't encapsulate the sure, meaning that that's we're true. you know trying to get at here it's this joy and this like how children yeah they see um they see more than meets the eye, which is exactly what's going on. Transformers. <laughs> no, I didn't. What, I didn't hear anything you said. All of now I'm thinking about is Optimus well, Prime. I was reinforcing your point. So. I know. Good. Nice point. <laughs> <laughs> and then as we as we keep traveling along the text, we get to another sentence, which is as the light grew and they could see it better. So they're talking about Aslan. It's, sorry, I should have read the whole thing. It says, every moment his dead face looked nobler as the light grew and they could see it better. So again, 
more and more hope is coming as the night is going on and the morning is quickly approaching. And I, I'd never picked up on this stuff before. Mm-hmm. And then you skip down just a little bit more to the very next paragraph, and it says, it was quite definitely early morning now, not late night. And so it, it, I've really loved kind of seeing the way that C.S. Lewis is transitioning, and transitioning us through this grief to the hope that's ahead. Yeah, for sure. All right, well, Phil, do you want to read what happens next after the girls go th- for a little walk? This part is um, right after Lucy says that she's cold and Susan says that she is too, and they decide to walk around for a bit. They walked to the eastern edge of the hill and looked down. The one big star had almost disappeared. The country all looked dark gray, but beyond, at the very end of the world, the sea showed pale. The sky began to turn red. They walked to and fro more times than they could count, between the dead Aslan and the eastern ridge, trying to keep warm, and oh, how tired their legs felt. Then, at last, as they stood for a moment looking out towards the sea in Care Paravel, which they could now just make out, the red turned to gold along the line where the sea and the sky met, and very slowly up came the edge of the sun. At that moment, they heard from behind them a loud noise, a great cracking, deafening noise, as if a giant had broken a giant's plate. So is it like a loud crash? Is it a deep... I'm trying to imagine what a giant breaking a giant's plate sounds like. It's like, a, you ever broken a plate before? No. Well, it's loud. Okay, go, gra- <laughs> go grab a plate. No, no, yeah, no. Me, okay, let me go down the kitchen. <laughs> I mean, it's... So, yeah. I think it would be like a loud crash, but uh, if it's a giant's plate, I imagine everything would be thicker, mm-hmm. and it would just be like a much deeper sound. Um, sure. Much more powerful sound, like the kind that kind of, um, like forcibly moves you when you hear it. Mm-hmm. Very loud shatter. Yeah. I also like how in that passage again. I mean, I, I sound like a broken record, but we he, with the folk. There's a big focus on the sun coming up here. Yeah, that that's the part that stood out to me. The part that I underlined: the red turned to gold along the line where the sea and the sky met. It's just a whole lot of connection to, you know, the overall, like, the light coming in in multiple ways. So the two girls rush back to the stone table, and what do they see? <laughs> I'm drum rolling. <laughs> oh. <laughs> this is like um, when no one no one was paying attention in class. <laughs> <laughs> That's why I'm used to it. I can wait out the long pauses I'm forever. I'm asleep. <laughs> yeah. You repeat the question. Okay. So the two girls, they hear this deafening, cracking sound, and then they run back to the stone table to find what? The rising of the sun had made everything look so different, and there was no Aslan. And it's the rising of the sun in a couple of ways, right? Exactly. I think yeah. that's a pretty pretty clear uh, symbolism there. And the, you know, the stone table itself has been split in half. And then we see, I love this, shining in the sunrise, larger than they had ever seen him before, shaking his mane, for it had apparently grown again, stood Aslan himself. So again, this is like so much of this is related to the light. Again, I mean, I'm just, this is like, that's literally my only note for this whole chapter pretty much is, hey, there's a lot of stuff to do with light and dark. (laughs) Yes. It's like as soon as the sun kind of appears over the horizon, then you hear the crack. And then 
if you ever watch a sunrise, it happens so fast. Mm-hmm. Like it kind of takes a while to get started, but then as soon as the sun appears, it's like almost instantly, uh, you know, from a distance, it appears to be several feet above the horizon within a few seconds. Mm-hmm. Um, and now it's like backlighting Aslan, which is really cool. Definitely like a hero shot moment. Yeah, and it's really cool in the, in the movie. I thought they actually did that really well. I look forward to that. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's a really cool thing, and I think there's also a lot of just, you know, small symbolism here with, you know, who is it that sees Aslan after he, he's resurrected? I mean, it's, which, that actually is a nice segue into another reason why this is one of my, probably my favorite chapter of the book. Um, just the fact, I mean, so clearly, not even, not just the resurrection, right, but the, even the crucifixion of Jesus, you have women being explicitly named which is a huge deal in the Bible anytime women are explicitly named. I won't go into the like nitty-gritty historical context stuff, but in that time, in that particular society, for women to be named at all was pretty significant. And the fact that in all of the Gospels, we have at least the Marys mentioned mm-hmm. at the crucifixion. And sometimes at the burial, and then always, you know, a lot of, a lot of times... Um, the Bible will, will have like a little subtitle, The Resurrection Morning, which I think is really lovely. Um, mm-hmm. The fact that, you know, here we have Lucy and Susan basically being like the Marys. Sure. They witness like the deep sorrow and pain in seeing their Savior die. And then, you know, in some cases finding the empty tomb, the empty table. I mean, there's so many, there's so many crazy parallels there. And to be honest, I think that's such a great connection. But I think after that, I think that's where the symbolism kind of stops. So I, this is like, I don't know, like, for some, like I, so as we go into this, Aslan then tells, you know, why this has happened. Mm-hmm. And I think this is where it, start, it goes back from, we've, we've gotten pretty actually allegorical in a lot of mm-hmm. these things. I think where we go back to well, this. the table literally has the old law on it. Yeah, exactly. Where it had the curtain tour, which was like the symbol of the old covenant. Yes. I mean, I Bible. think that stuff is pretty kind of, there is almost a, not quite, but there is almost like a one for one symbolism there. But then Aslan gives us, he, he tells the girls what's happened because like Lucy's like, wait, is he a ghost? And, mm-hmm. you know, he's, he just says, like, do I look it? You know, and <laughs> Which Jesus does that, too. Yeah. I mean, mm-hmm. but then I think we kind of turn, you know, things go a little bit the other way as Aslan explains what has happened. And I'm going to just read that here. And I've tried so hard to avoid <laughs> reading as Aslan this entire time. We haven't done many uh, character voices in a while because it's just it's too daunting of a task. But we just have to read this, so uh, bear with me. <laughs> but what does it all mean, asked Susan, when they were somewhat calmer. It means, said Aslan, that though the witch knew the deep magic, there was a magic deeper still which she did not know. Her knowledge goes back only to the dawn of time. But if she could have looked a little further back into the stillness and the darkness before time dawned, she would have read there a different incantation. She would have known that when a willing victim who has committed no treachery was killed in a traitor's stead, the table would crack and death itself would start working backward. Any thoughts about this kind of complicated passage as we hear about the deep and deeper magic yeah while this might not be um you know a word for word 
with the gospel, right? But we can all kind of see, um, like C.S. Lewis makes it very palatable here, you know, especially for children, that a willing victim who had committed no treachery was killed in a traitor's stead. I mean, that's pretty, that's pretty easy to understand, right? That that's what Aslan did. That's what Jesus did. Yeah. I mean, I think it's, I think it's digestible for children. I Mm -hmm. think it's something we can kind of go, you could be reading this book to a five, six year old and be able to explain Mm -hmm. some very, very basic tenets of the gospel and things that we could kind of, um, yeah, that that a, that a kid be able to understand. Mm-hmm. But he's also strategically left out certain things. For example, it doesn't take him three days to rise again. He doesn't rise on the third day. Exactly, which is a kind of a clear like, oh, okay, this isn't a, you know, and this is why. I mean, we've had listeners, and I've we there's a lot of people who read these books. If if you don't have a Christian background, you and at all, you might be completely unaware of these things. Mm-hmm. And that's you know that's and that's why for me like. You know, reading as a kid, my parents don't even know if, like, as my mom was reading it, I think Emily talked about it, that my mom would, you know, read it with us. I don't even think she ever said the first time, like, oh, this is an allegory or this is a supposal for Jesus. I think we just clearly picked up on it because we kind of had grown up in that environment. But there's, if you don't have that, you're not growing up in that environment, you might not be able to to pick up on that quite as clearly. Which could be, too. I mean, whenever... I don't know if y'all feel like this too. Whenever I am watching a movie or having a conversation with someone who is not a believer in Jesus, it is really cool to hear them grapple with that kind of th- that kind mm-hmm. of theme. Um, we tricked you. <laughs> we got them. <laughs> well, no, I mean more so. It's like this is crazy that some that Aslan didn't do anything wrong, and yet he was slain by the witch. Yeah. To save Edmund, who was kind of a little butthead. Hey, hey, we are a G-rated podcast in here, Anna Catherine. (laughs) I can't believe she said that. (laughs) Listeners, we apologize. That was completely uncalled for. Here comes the explicit label. Yeah. Uh, So let's keep moving on past this, and we get to a really fun section, which I know Anna was really excited to read. So do you want to share that? Yeah. So it's it's very shortly after that when Aslan is saying he feels his strength coming back to him. It's a little lower down that page. Um, All right. Round and round the hilltop he led them, now hopelessly out of their reach, now letting them almost catch his tail, now diving between them, now tossing them in the air with his beautiful and huge velveted paws and catching them again, and now stopping unexpectedly so that all three of them rolled together in a happy laughing heap of fur and arms and legs. It was such a romp as no one has ever had except in Narnia. And whether it was more like playing with a thunderstorm or playing with a kitten, Lucy could never make up her mind. Oh, that last part's really great. And that's kind of the whole, like, he's, a, you know, of course he isn't safe, but he's the king. Like, it's literally like, are you playing with a kitten or playing with a thunderstorm? That's so really well written. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I just love the joy in that in that passage. It just really, yeah, it brings it brings to life, like, the incredible deep sorrow that we were talking about earlier. Um, that C.S. Lewis kind of bring brings you into and um, kind of as the reader, you really empathize. You're like mm-hmm. there with uh, Lucy and Susan. And then it's like they're literally playing and rolling over and laughing and romping. I just love, <laughs> I love that. 
I wish that we more seriously use the word romp in our everyday language. I mean, you can. I mean, I can, right? Let's romp, like romp around. Uh, <laughs> I think it's really, I think it's really great. Um, yeah, and I can just really picture that. And I think, yeah, just seeing this joy, we can't really feel that joy without feeling the sorrow that we felt earlier, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. And then, and then it kind of changes again. So they have that playfulness, and then Aslan roars, and the girls can't even look at his face because it became so terrible. So again, you have mm-hmm. that kind of juxtaposition of this, mm-hmm. you know, Aslan is terrible and strong and not safe, but then he's also, yeah. he's regal and he's playful, mm-hmm. right? I, I, it's really, it really makes Aslan such an interesting character. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I just love that, you know, he's all of those things. It's like you were, y'all were saying, like, how is he, how is he terrible and playful? All those things at the same time. I just love that he comes to them. Um, I mean, Aslan is such a great character, obviously. <laughs> I'm a fan. Um, but he comes to them in a way that they, like, he speaks to them in their language, right? Like, he, they're children, so he plays with them. That's the first thing he does. I also love the smooth transition where they're just kind of rolling around, laughing, having a good time. And he goes, and now to business. <laughs> right. <laughs> I think I'm going to roar now. <laughs> oh, yeah. So after all that's done... They hop on Aslan's back, mm-hmm. and they ride. I guess I guess you still say ride, even though he's a lion, right? Mm-hmm. They ride mm-hmm. on his back to the witch's castle. <laughs> Excuse me, to castle. the wi- <laughs> to the witch's castle. And I, I mean, I guess just to kind of stay consistent throughout this season, I, I'm very unclear of how far away the witch's castle is. Yeah, that was actually what I thought about when I was reading this chapter, because y'all keep talking about that, and I was like, oh, I've never really considered, where is her? When you look at the maps, it doesn't look like the stone table is mm-hmm. close to the castle. Mm-hmm. So I'm what I'm imagining happens here is Aslan is using some kind of magic to get them there faster than they should get there. Mm-hmm. Well, and kind of along, like, going further here, We've got another time where C.S. Lewis's voice comes in again where he is breaking the fourth wall. Like, have you ever had a gallop on a horse? <laughs> it's it's like that, but right. then get rid of the noise. Right. Then imagine, like, you know, you're not riding on a road or in a park or even on the downs. Do y'all know what the downs are? He's talking about just the English countryside. Oh, okay. That sounds so lovely. I think. I don't know. We're, mm-hmm. we're city dwellers. We don't really know. Right. right. Well, I mean, I know what the countryside is, but. <laughs> I'm from a more rural area, listeners. Um, mm-hmm. But not the English countryside. <laughs> Probably really... like the opposite of the English countryside. Um, I do love, I, I marked a little part where um, every time there's some description mm-hmm. of the location yeah. or like the order of events, like. For example, in here, they go past tree trunks, mm-hmm. jumping over bush and briar, then smaller streams, then larger, and then swimming the largest of all. Every time I see something like that, and then later on, like glades of oak, wild orchards, snow white cherry trees, roaring waterfalls, mossy rocks, I always mark it because um, I think that that would help Daniel make a map of Narnia. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the it shoulders you- of heathery mountains. I don't even know what that means. It- uh, giddy ridges makes a little more sense. Acres of blue flowers is pretty clear. Those are poppies. 
I mean, it definitely helps me picture it more. I don't know if it helps me figure out how close <laughs> things are, like the like the geography of the land. But I think I think again, it's we've talked about this since I don't know, probably the first or second chapter. This is not. Um, I think one of the one of the mistakes we often make is saying, you know, C.S. Lewis and Tolkien were were close friends, and therefore all of their stuff should be the same. Where Tolkien has this very, um, I mean, his world is very much consistent throughout. I mean, you go all the way from its founding, and you talk about like Era Luvatar, all the way through the Third Age and the Lord of the Rings, and things kind of like fall in line, and it feels like a lived-in world. Narnia doesn't necessarily have that. Each, you know, even each book is very different. It's seven distinct stories where like the Lord of the Rings is one overarching, you know, story. And and I think that's that's okay. And so one of the things I've kind of come to grips with, I guess, is that like this land doesn't have to be this kind of thing I can put right on a map and be like, "Oh, this is where everything is. This is where the Gap of Rohan is, and this is where Isengard and Fangorn Forest are." Like, no, like we don't really have all that stuff. Like this is a magical land and maybe, I mean, maybe it's even the case that some of these things are, you know, not like traditional, like geographic places. Like we envision them here in our world, you know? Mm-hmm. Right. And I'm okay. I'm becoming more and more okay with that. So okay. as they get to the witch's home, they have this, you know, that all of the gates are there. It's that they're fastened shut and there's these really tall walls and I'm going to read the very last paragraph of the chapter as the, the two girls in Aslan get inside the castle. Next moment, the whole world seemed to turn upside down, and the children felt as if they had left their insides behind them. For the lion had gathered himself together for a greater leap than any he had yet made and jumped, or you may call it flying rather than jumping, right over the castle wall. The two girls, breathless but unhurt, found themselves tumbling off his back in the middle of a wide stone courtyard full of statues. And that's what we'll end for today. Any last thoughts before we we wrap up this chapter? Things are looking up. (laughs) Literally. (laughs) Uh, Did you have any thoughts, Anna, about this chapter before we ask you some questions? Oh, there are going to be questions for me? You didn't study? No. (laughs) Um... Yeah, I mean, I've kind of alluded to this. Listeners, I am a big-time feeler. I, yeah, I have a lot of feelings and emotions. I'm actually in school to be a counselor, spoiler for everyone. So that's a big part of who I am and how I interact with this book um, is the feelings. And so I just really, I just really feel like (laughs) um, with the joy and with the sorrow, for me as a kid and me as an adult, reading through this chapter really does help me connect better with the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus. And so I just kind of wanted to highlight that about C.S. Lewis does an incredible job of drawing us in to Lucy and Susan's sorrow, which draws me deeper into the sorrow that I feel um, when Jesus is crucified. But then also on the flip side, the joy that that we feel as Lucy and Susan play with the resurrected Aslan. Aslan. <laughs> do you like it? Do you like envision uh, the two Marys and Jesus like playing tag in the well, choir? Actually, like, hey, you guys want to play tag? <laughs> actually, I know this is I know this is not a word for word, but I always think about you know it wasn't the Marys, right? When they have breakfast with Jesus, do y'all know what I'm talking about? I think it's at the end of John. Um, mm-hmm. You know, and it's when 
Peter gets the opportunity. If you're wrong, you know. someone will let us know. Don't <laughs> right, right, right. Someone right. will email us. Um, it's, you know, when Jesus is asking Peter, feed my sheep, all that. I think, I mean, food was a huge part of their culture. Food is a huge part of my culture, too. So I kind of feel like the playing to playing to children is as eating is to adults. You know oh, what I, I mean? Oh, I like that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, it's like, let's do something. Like, before, I mean, that's true. Like, before Jesus, quote, unquote, got down to business, they had breakfast. Right. The Daniel, most... I, d- I don't think they would play tag because they would get close to Jesus and he would be like, don't touch me. Oh, I that's right. Yeah, ascended yeah, so to, to, to the heaven. Father. I'm glad you said that because we would have gotten an email on that too. Oh, for sure. <laughs> uh, <laughs> although we do appreciate and love our email, so we do. We really don't mind being corrected. I'm just trying to save y'all some time. Uh, so, Anna, before we let you go, we have two questions we've asked everyone on their first visit by our podcast here. And the, the first question I have for you is, what is your favorite book in the Narnia series? Hmm... Anna, just to listeners know, she's looking at the back of the book right now. So I. It's been okay. So it's been such a long. She's time. looking at the books on the back of the book. No, it's been such a long time since I've read this. Since I read the series, I was a big fan. I was a huge reader when I was a kid, and I read. And series were my favorites. So I read a lot of series. I was a big Anne of Green Gables fan. Just so everyone oh, yeah. knows. I mean, I really enjoyed this book. But I think which, which, I, you can't. They can't see what the you're lion, pointing to. The, the, well, this book, the one that we are talking about. <laughs> okay. I really do enjoy this book. I do remember really liking the magician's nephew too. Yeah. So you I don't have to apologize yeah, for that. It's great. I really, really didn't like the horse and his boy. We got some listeners that really like it. I know. It, so you might... I know. And I'm trying to remember what I didn't like about it. I think I thought it was boring. That's so fair. maybe maybe <laughs> I, which I realize I realize that one of the other guests. Sarah Jane, who's actually, like, one of my best friends, really, you know, that has kind of caused some tension. We never talked about the fact that she really loved that book. That's why we, we were and actually... And I thought it was really boring. We were actually That's why we're having you on separate episodes. Exactly. Episode. You guys were going to come on at the same time. We're like, well, they can't. They just feel so differently about the horse and his boy, it'll get ugly. She probably remembers it better than I do. Or maybe so. she just doesn't like, you know, maybe you don't like good things, or maybe she doesn't like good things. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's deeper than that. Maybe she's boring. Yeah. I, mean, yeah. I actually... Oh I actually... Gosh. Horse and His Boy is my least favorite, too. So, oops. Oh, but at least I've read them all, so. I mean, I've read all of them. No, I I'm talking about Phil. All right, so so that's, so that's this is your favorite. I'm working book. on it. <laughs> are, that, are you interested in, so we'd love to have you on again. Are you going to plan on reading any more as an adult? Or is this kind of like, I kind of want to follow along with us as we're going through? Because you're actually a listener. Of this, you're like our first listener, really. Right. Um, when I finished graduate school, yeah. I really <laughs> do want to so reread. We'll wait. Yeah. Um, I mean, I've enjoyed rereading rereading some of this book so far. It's been really great. Did you read all of the book um, to get here, or are you just reading like a couple of chapters? Like, have you reread the whole book um, of Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe? I've reread pieces of it. Yeah, that's mm-hmm. fair. Yeah, you've been kind of busy. Yeah, <laughs> and you're nice enough after I've just begged you a thousand times to come on the show <laughs> to do it. Uh, the second question we've been asking people is, what did you, like? What is your relationship to these books? So, like, did you grow up with them? I know we kind of grew up uh, in different types of households. And so is this something that, like, y'all were reading as kids? Or is this something you just read on your own? Tell us. I was definitely reading it as a kid. Mm-hmm. I remember teachers reading it to us. Okay. Like, read aloud in class. Um, when I was Do you remember what grade? Pretty young. Uh, probably second or third grade. Okay. Um, interestingly enough, I know. Were all, were all the grades all together in the same room? 
<laughs> no, I'm not from that rule. <laughs> well, you mentioned Anna Green Gables and like I was Oh just yeah. Of... Well, I love. I mean, I just love Anna Green Gables. Yeah. Um, when you practice writing, did you have to stick the pencil in the fire to get enough chard? <laughs> yes, Phil. I Death. did. I did. Yeah. Um, you know, and my quill and, you know. Oh, like in Harry um, Potter? Yes. Which, interesting, yeah, awesome. interestingly enough, though, I realize this can be kind of controversial in some places, but I had teachers who, like, I had a teacher, I think my third grade teacher read The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe aloud and one of the first Harry Potter book aloud to us. Oh. Well, don't so tell that. her name. I don't want her to get in trouble. I won't. <laughs> um, <laughs> But I, I do remember that. So I had that relationship. And then also, like I mentioned, I was a big reader as a kid. And I especially loved series of mm-hmm. books. So I really liked to kind of get, you know, in the story and the reoccurring nature of it. Um, like my... Animorphs? No, oh, actually, man. I was not into Animorphs. Sorry. <laughs> I feel like, I don't know if it was after my time. I don't know. I read a lot of old books because my grandma was really, she was really a really big part of my childhood. Um, and she would literally just give me a series of books. So she, I think she got the entire Narnia series from a yard sale. That's how I got a lot of the oh, books cool. that I read. Um, she was a big, big yard sailor, I guess. <laughs> she would, that, the word? that was like one of her hobbies. She went like early every Saturday morning and she would scour for books and other things. Um, and she got this whole series and she would just like give me the books to read. Um, no, I was more of a Babysitter's Club fan, if you're talking about, like, the Animorphs. <laughs> Aside from the classics, like, the Chronicles of Narnia, I read the Babysitter's Club. And Nancy Drew. That's You actually bring up a, a good point here, um, which because you just looped, uh, or you included the Chronicles of Narnia as classics. Would you say they are classics? To me, they are. Yeah. I think. I mean, I think they are, too. What about you, Phil? Definitely. But here's an interesting thing. As we've started doing this podcast, uh, I usually, whenever I'm at a bookstore, I go check out the mm. Lion, the Witch, and the or the the Narnia section, just because I like to see like what different you know versions of the books they have. Because it's been really cool. We've had listeners even share with us like their favorite covers and mm-hmm. stuff. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, that was awesome. Yeah, but one of the things that's been interesting is there's not usually a lot of like copies of the Narnia books and like I go like Barnes and Noble or mm-hmm. uh, like Books a Million or just like local places. And I always wonder like, is it something that is, I mean, obviously Narnia is not necessarily as popular as things like, um, you know, Harry Potter mm-hmm. or the Lion, mm-hmm. the Witch, and the Ward or uh, sorry, the Lord of the Ring or the Hobbit would be the more an equivalent. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, obviously not as, not as popular. And, and you know, there's, but I would still say they're classics because how many other you know children's books are from like the 1950s are still around on shelves in a Barnes and Noble? Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? They definitely are, don't have that same kind of reach as some of those other books. You know what I mean? But you would still say they're they're classics. I do. I would say like I mean just to keep drawing the parallel because they kind of are grouped together in my mind. Anne of Green Gables is like not as you don't find that series. That's true. Yeah. Uh, um, as easily and most people like i've talked to people before they don't even know that anne of green gables was a series they're like oh it was just that one book oh okay (laughs) just a single book um and a lot of people have just read that one but i would also say that that classics by ellen montgomery so i mean i don't know because i think which this isn't children's books but i i have not enjoyed the charles dickens books that i've read (laughs) as much so i don't know if like what people define as a classic should necessarily be you know, the standard for what a good book is. 
Yeah, I mean, that's a lot of it's subjective. That's yeah, the, that's the thing. I just, I, I, I think they are, and I think even the fact that, that we're still around talking about these books, you know, more than fifty years later, I think shows they've they've kind of stood the test of time. And I mean, I know that um, yeah, there's all kinds of stuff going on with this. They're trying to make the silver chair movie, and people are arguing mm-hmm. like, is, is there even an audience for this, and all those kind of things. I think even the mere fact that a book from you know, more than 50 years ago might potentially get, you know, a movie adaptation is still a pretty big deal. Mm-hmm. You know, I, 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 I mean, and I think they're obviously classics. I think C.S. Lewis has written, I, I think they're masterpieces, to be honest. Any last thoughts before we wrap up? We've gone kind of long today. That's it on this end. Yeah. All right. Well, listeners, you can follow us into the wardrobe on our Twitter or Facebook pages. If you have any feedback, you can email us at thenarniapodcast at gmail.com or you can leave us a voicemail at 406-646-6733. That's 406-646-6733. We'd also appreciate a review on Apple Podcasts because this helps other listeners find the show and join with us on our read-through. Also, make sure you've subscribed to the show in whatever podcast app you like to use so you can wake up to a new episode every other Wednesday. Our show's themes were created by Kevin McLeod. You can find more of his work in the links in our episode description. Thank you for coming along on this journey, and we will be back next time for Chapter 16.